The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Here's this, a, just a tremendous story out on the Bloomberg Terminal, black and white on Wall Street, the unwritten code on race here. I'm just going to start a couple of things here. Here are 13 unwritten rules about being black on Wall Street, according to people who've lived in. I'll just give you a couple. Never forget, this is number one, never forget, despite all those promises about diversity, only about 1% of senior management is black. Number two, be careful about pointing that out to mostly white mostly male trading desks. And number three, get used to hearing about the supposed lack of qualified black uh, applicants. So just a powerful, powerful start to a powerful story. Uh, Michelle Davis, Bloomberg Finance reporter, joins us. So Michelle, give us some of the key takeaways. Some of, Boy, the way you started this article was very powerful with these 13 unwritten rules. What are kind of your key takeaways here? Thanks. So, you know, Wall Street, much like the rest of corporate America and the nation is facing this huge reckoning over race right now um, in the wake of, you know, the killing of George Floyd. And and for years, decades, Wall Street has been promising to confront some of these failures. Um, and right now, lots of the banks are, you know, have been hosting town halls about racism, asking workers to, you know, weigh in and share their experiences. But after talking to dozens of black workers across Wall Street, um, what I, you know, heard from people is that while many are, are heartened by the fact that there are these open conversations happening right now, it's clear that Wall Street really has failed its people of color. And there's a lot of skepticism that, that any of the conversations are, are, you know, going to result in real change. People, people are skeptical that, you know, this, this bro, white bro culture is, is, going to change because it's, it's hard to pierce. And let's point out that it's difficult to have open conversations at work a lot of the time, just in general. So this would be a very, very difficult conversation to have openly. Michelle, any idea what the delay is, why it's taking so long for Wall Street to up its ranks of black people in executive chairs, in C-suites, and even just among rank and file? It's not as if there really isn't enough Uh, of a pipeline. There are plenty of historically black colleges. There are plenty of candidates out there. What's Wall Street's excuse? So workers that I talked to described having to abide by unwritten rules, like, you know, measuring their passion and their directness. Um, They describe double standards on pay or, you know, having to code switch, which if you don't know, is the practice of you know, interacting in different ways depending on a social context and um, also having to live with double standards. So if you, you know, are a black female trader or I mean, even a black female trader is something that is very rare in the industry. But if you have to act a different way than your white male colleagues just to, you know, exist or have a role, then that is something that is going to hold you back from actually 
rising up the ranks. So it was a lot of this, you know, having to abide by these unwritten rules. And, and some of the people I talked to, you know, mentioned that there there are some parallels between, you know, maybe uh, the plight of black workers and also the experiences that other, you know, non-white um, individuals experience on Wall Street. But really, this is in this moment, especially like this is about it's especially hard to be a black worker on Wall Street. So it's interesting, Michelle, having spent 20 years on Wall Street, I know the importance of having a mentor kind of guide you through your career and also sponsor you for, you know, assignments, sponsor you for promotion and, and maybe ultimately the managing director and or partner or title. Talk to us about the the the, the, the mentor situation for uh, minorities uh, on Wall Street. So uh, you're right. A lot of the people I talked to said that uh, they attributed a lot of their success to having these sponsors within their organizations that, you know, even if they would have typically, you know, wanted to sponsor someone that looked like them, they, these people described them having taken a chance um, and said that they really, you know, sponsorship and mentorship is something that really is critical to, um, you know, black representation on wall street. And uh, based on the conversations I I've been hearing about that are happening at, at the banks. Um, you know, it seems like there is some change happening. Uh, I know Goldman Sachs has now required more bias training by its employees. They're thinking about uh, formalizing a sort of sponsorship program. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a very, it's something that's very critical um, in order to, uh, you know, make the workplace better. Uh, just to point out some of the numbers that we, we haven't brought up yet. Um, there have been diversity initiatives on Wall Street for decades now, but um, the industry has actually been getting whiter in recent years. At J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup, the percentage of black workers overall has been falling, not rising. Uh, just to point out, one bank at J.P. Morgan, the number has dropped from 13% in 2019 from 19% yes. in a little over a decade. Michelle, it's really a fantastic story. I would urge everybody to read it. It's Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg, Black and White on Wall Street, the unwritten code on race. It's absolutely mandatory reading today. Well, a number of massive companies from Starbucks to Unilever, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, Verizon, Levi's and many, many more have decided that they are executing an exodus from Facebook. They don't like the talk that's on Facebook, the partisanship that's on Facebook, the highly targeted ads on Facebook. And so they have pulled the plug, at least for 2020, on advertising. Let's bring in someone who knows a lot about this now. Mark Douglas is CEO of Steelhouse, based in Los Angeles, California. And Steelhouse is a partner with Facebook, also a leader in highly targeted ads on, you know, platforms from connected TV to the social media platforms. Mark, welcome and thanks for joining. Why now? These companies have been threatening to do this for a long time. Facebook has engaged in, you know, incremental self-betterment. But now the companies have decided enough is enough. Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind, and it answers the question, is Facebook has two types of advertisers brand advertisers and direct response advertisers. Direct response are basically e-commerce companies, internet retailers, companies like that. That's who Facebook depends upon. Um, those companies are also dependent on Facebook. So those companies are not boycotting yet. 
the brand advertisers are concerned about what they call brand safety. Basically, they spend a lot of money, a company like Pepsi, some of the examples you, you've given, they spend a lot of money to build those brands, and they are always very concerned with brand safety. And so that's what's driving the boycott. It's better to boycott or be out of Facebook than to risk damaging your brands. And so that's what's driving it. Yeah, so Mark, you know, Facebook has more than 8 million advertising clients here. And as you mentioned, the direct, a lot of them are small uh, advertisers, direct response uh, advertisers. So if there's, and you know, to the extent that they're not following suit with some of the high profile names we've seen, where is the risk to, to Facebook really here as they try to deal with an issue that seems to be resonating not only with advertisers, but with a lot of their users? Yeah, so the, the near-term risk the immediate risk of plastic financial risk is actually not that significant for Facebook um, because those brand advertisers just don't really account for a lot of Facebook's revenue, $17 billion last quarter. But there's a there's kind of a bigger risk looming for Facebook, which is data. So Facebook relies on Facebook login um, for a lot of data. And so, and as people have used Facebook itself less, um, you don't get as much data from Instagram, which Facebook are also owns. So with the declining usage of Facebook itself, more, um, less data available from Instagram, if people start boycotting Facebook login, that would actually be a huge threat. So Mark, what is the, so, the, the Facebook login? Is that when I'm logging into a different app, I just say, hey, use my Facebook information to log in for me? It, exactly. That okay. feeds a lot of data into Facebook, and Facebook uses that data to make those smaller advertisers to give them the performance, the revenue that they're looking for. So if you threaten that, that's a much, much bigger risk to Facebook than, you know, Pepsi boycotting Facebook. So how much of this, the fact that it's happening in 2020, has to do with the pandemic as well? Curious, because obviously this is something that the companies, you know, really believe in. And, you know, once one, you know, dropped advertising, the dominoes kind of fell and more and more and more are doing it right now. But has it something to do with the fact that it's sort of handy to have to pare back on spending this year? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's, a, that's a really good point. The, if, if you boycott Facebook, you might have already been cutting back your budgets anyway. So now you can basically put those cut, cutbacks in the context of taking a social stance, of, of doing something that maybe a lot of your customers may agree with. So it, it's super convenient. <laughs> As, and and um, how sincere it is, um, I think some of these large companies, you know, they're driven by the bottom line, obviously. They're driven by brand safety concerns. So I think, yeah, this year has a lot What has a lot to do with it. It's also an easy choice for them. Most of those bigger customers rely on television, not social. Um, so they're not really losing that much by boycotting Facebook, and it's a perfect year to do it. So, Mark, you do some, some work with Facebook. I'm sure you know some a lot of folks at, at Facebook. Why, why do you think Zuckerberg is taking this stance here? Hey, I'm just a platform. I'm, media, I'm not a media company. I don't have any editorial responsibility. He seems to be on at least the, 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 le- the less popular side of this question, if not the wrong side. What do you think he's really thinking here? Uh, well, it's a difficult question. It gets a bit political. So essentially, any form of extremism is is probably not a good thing, right? So whether you're extremely progressive or extremely conservative, I think Mark Zuckerberg 
is trying to avoid either extreme, and the world is asking people to take sides. There, 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 there's just no doubt about it. And, and so, I mean, and I think logically he's doing the right thing by saying it's not my position to judge what, you know, content is good, what content is bad. But we're living in a time right now where people are asking for judgments to be made, especially when you distribute content to over 2 billion people. And so um, it's, it's kind of like um, a football game. You know, you, you might be the second person to throw a punch, but you're the one that brought the sauce. So, so yep. you know, he, he, so that, that's the position that he's in. And um, I think it's a, it's a really difficult position. It's, happy to make any, it's hard for him to yep. make anyone happy right now. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and that's uh, seeing an impact on a stock. And stock was at a 52-week high just uh, you know, a, a week or so ago. So the 11% pullback we've seen in the last couple of days, you have to take that in context. Mark Douglas, CEO of Steelhouse, uh, based in Los Angeles, talking about Facebook here and a tough position they're in here is, again, over as, as Mark was uh, saying, over 2 billion users globally. Clearly, they have an outsized impact on the global dialogue as it relates to all issues, uh, including uh, political issues as well. We'll follow up on that story. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Right now, let's take a look at the market outlook. Again, a strong market here as we open a holiday shortened week to get a sense of kind of where we are here in the market and how we should think about the second half of 2020. We turn to Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist for Federated Hermes. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. We have a strong day today. Uh, you know, a tremendous rebound in the market after that initial COVID sell-off in March. What do you think about the second half here? Well, I, I think the easy money has been made in the sense that the stock market, you had this powerful 47% rally from March 23rd into about the first week in June. Uh, things are going to be a little choppier and, and not quite as easy going forward. You've got this tug of war right now going on between uh, pretty good economic data, uh, but you've had this spike in infections in, in some of the key southeastern and southwestern states. Um, we'll have a much better feel for how that tag war is going to play out over the next six weeks or so. Uh, but um, we, we, we took some chips off the table uh, last week um, because we were a little bit concerned about uh, how well the market may do here uh, in light of uh, some of these issues, uh, given the fact that we've had such a powerful rebound rally already. Why on earth would anyone be scared at this point? The market seems to go up no matter what <laughs> happens, including, you know, cases spiking in you know a dozen states again, and, and this not going away anytime soon. Well, the, the situation in the Northeast and the Midwest is, is pretty good in terms of the, uh, the peaking of infections and mortalities back in the middle of April and the fact that we've been able to execute uh, a grind lower over the last couple of months, in part because I think people have done the right thing. Social distancing, wearing masks, washing your hands, that kind of thing. Um, that's not what's going on right now in a couple of the key states, Florida, 
Texas, Arizona, California. Those numbers have spiked over the course of the last three or four weeks. And, and we don't have a vaccine yet. Uh, we may have one uh, for emergency use, perhaps as early as this fall, but we don't have one right now. Uh, and, and certainly that's, that's caught our attention. And uh, you, you run the risk of, of uh, do we shut these, uh, some of these key cities or some of these key states down again? Does that, does that potentially extend this recession from the first half that we think is going to end at the end of June? But, but does, that, does that lengthen the duration of this recession at some point in the second half? And given that uncertainty, and, and given the fact that the stock market's up 47% in, in you know, 12 weeks, we, we thought it was prudent to maybe take some chips off the table, just manage risk a little bit, and uh, see how events play out over the next month or so. So, Phil, how important is uh, another round of fiscal stimulus? I know there's a trillion-dollar number being thrown around Washington, but there doesn't seem to be any urgency to get another round of fiscal stimulus out there. How critical is that for the second half of this year from an economic perspective? I would... Uh, disagree with that assessment a little bit. I think there's a tremendous sense of urgency, but it's not going to happen before we see Friday or Thursday's jobs report. And that was always the plan. So so Speaker Pelosi, uh, uh, the Democrats in the House passed the HEROES Act in May, uh, roughly a $3 trillion program. Um, the, uh, I think the Republican Senate would like to uh, pass a program that's about half that size. Let's call it uh, a trillion and a half dollars. But that's not going to happen until Congress comes back from vacation after the Independence Day holiday. Uh, so two things. Number one, they're on vacation. Number two, they want to see how good or how bad is the June jobs report that we're going to see this coming Thursday. And then that will inform exactly how big the bill should be and and what's the best way to craft the bill in terms of where should the incentives be and how large should the incentives be in terms of trying to encourage people back to work or protecting those individuals uh, additionally who aren't able to go back to work uh, because their businesses might, might still be shuttered. Or because they're afraid of catching coronavirus. Phil, I was being just a little tongue-in-cheek earlier. I mean, it really seems to me like this market is going higher and higher, and maybe it's not based on reality. I mean, what if, for example, you know, it takes weeks and weeks to bring down the coronavirus cases in the states that are sort of more southern and more westerly right now, but by then it's already back in New York City. I mean, there is a virus on the loose out there. Is the market pricing it in at all? Well, and, and, and that's, that's a very astute uh, assessment because the fact that the market's up 47% in the last three months is not based upon how well or how poorly things are going right this second in, in terms of either combating the disease or in terms of what corporate earnings are going to look like in the second quarter. What, what the market is doing is its traditional approach as a forward-looking discounting mechanism. It's looking out deep into the second half of this year or even into calendar 21 and saying, okay, um, we've got this thing under control We've got a vaccine. Uh, we're, we're starting to get back to normal. Let's look at what normalized earnings are and then attempt to discount that back and, and uh, establish what we think is an appropriate price. 
So there's something of a disconnect there between some investors who think that the market's ahead of itself because the numbers don't support where it is right now, as opposed to those investors that recognize, I think, that what we're looking, we're attempting to do is looking out six or 12 months and then pricing it back based upon where we think things are going to be perhaps six or 12 months from now. So, uh, Phil, just about 30 seconds or so, you, you, suge- you mentioned that you were taking some, uh, some chips off the table. Are there still some areas where you, maybe you see some value and some opportunity here, given the run-up? Well, international uh, certainly is looking more attractive here. Uh, developed international uh, is as cheap compared to developed U.S. or large-cap U.S. as it was in the bottom of the Great Recession in 07 09. Uh, small cap still looks interesting to us. Uh, there's some attractiveness in emerging markets. Um, uh, value is cheaper than growth. So there are pockets of opportunities here. Uh, but right now, uh, we're in a bit, uh, I think we're in a little bit of a June swoon, and uh, we need to see how this thing plays out. Phil, thanks. Always great to speak with you. The S&P 500 up nine-tenths of percent right now, and uh, over the last week, it's up 0.6%, so I'm still waiting to see that tune soon. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.6 right now, mostly on Boeing. It may be able to restart testing today, which, of course, many, many companies have been waiting on, uh, not just the market and Boeing itself. And we have the Nasdaq for once is actually the laggard today, up uh, four-tenths of 1%. But thanks to Phil Orlando, Federated Hermes Investors, for speaking with us there. Florida positivity rates have been rising and it's not the only state where that's happening. It's happening in several states in the South and the Midwest and the outlook is pretty, pretty dire for certain states, including Arizona. Our next guest says that it's not like a wildfire where you can't just put it out. It's a really dire situation, according to our next guest, who is Dr. David Engeltaller. Co-director and associate professor of the Pathogen and Microbiome Division at TGen North. He was also Arizona's state epidemiologist for a time. Dr. Engel Thaler, thank you for joining. Explain to us why you are so pessimistic about the outlook for Arizona and other states. Uh, good, good morning, Bonnie. Yeah, so I think you know what's happening with this uh, pandemic. It's it, it's doing what pandemics do. They cause a lot of disease and death and and it's going to have ebbs and flows and waves and we can certainly affect that with public policy and public participation and recommendations uh... and right now it looks like we're uh... maybe not following recommendations enough and and this virus is is having a heyday so doctor you know one of the things i've kind of toyed about and, and asked a lot of experts about is you know, here in the New York metro area, we had Governor Andrew Cuomo followed by Governor Murphy of New Jersey and some others, but really led by New York Governor Cuomo, really take an aggressive stance on shutting down, quarantining, and then, you know, on the reopening, doing it very gradually and focusing on social distancing and masking and all that good stuff. Does there need to be a federal response as opposed to state by state? Because we've seen now the states that did not take it seriously are the ones that are paying the price. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, obviously this virus doesn't care if you're in a red or a blue state, and pretty sure it doesn't really care who your governor is. It, we are definitely seeing def- different epidemiological patterns in different regions. So, yeah, for instance, in the Northeast and in New Jersey and New York, um, you know, when they were having their giant upswing, their 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 case fatality rates were, were really off the chart, you know, more than 7% in, in, in a number of those states. And out west, it's been very different. Uh, and and t- 
typically around one to two and a half percent in Arizona, California, Texas, and Utah. But the numbers right now are skyrocketing across the the southern states, uh, and it, and it could be um, in large part due to the fact that there's a lot of uh, 20-somethings that are out there thinking that opening up the state means that somehow they were invisible and, and a lot of interactions in, in public places without people uh, social distancing or wearing masks. Uh, and I think that's adding a lot to it. But I also think the fact that we have different strains of the virus moving around and different epidemiology in, in different regions of the country. Mm. Dr. Engelthor, if I could just be blunt, how long before it's back in the Northeast again? Yeah, this is not going away. Um, it, it, we will have uh, continue to have waves probably everywhere. Uh, it'd be hard to say what what's going to happen in 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 specific regions. It's uh, as as we can all tell, we can't model this scientifically, and we certainly can't guess uh, where, where these things are going. Uh, every every guess and every model has been wrong uh, to date. Uh, we just know that the virus. Uh, you know, I've, I've likened it to a wildfire. It's also like water. It finds the cracks and it gets in, and then it and then it then it spreads out. Uh, and so, you know, I think maybe a, a better question um, might actually be: Are we doing everything we can to protect those that are at highest risk, our our elder generation? Uh, and and sadly, in in most cases, we're not. Mm. All right. So, doctor, to the extent that uh, you know we are bound to see continuing waves of this across the country to varying degrees. That kind of brings us to the point of where do you think we are in terms of viable therapies to treat the virus and more importantly, is a, a ultimately a vaccine? Yeah, these definitely are the questions on, on everybody's mind. We need those uh, tools. And, and the, the, the good news is, is that, um, you know, the, the focus of the science, scientific world, especially the biomedical world, is on this disease and almost only this disease, which means that we're going to have a, a number of new advancements. We've already had that. Uh, we're going to be testing and looking at a lot of different drugs and, and repurposing a lot of drugs, and, and that's been covered heavily in the media, and, and some are going to work and some flat out won't, but we got to keep moving forward and keep trying. Uh, and then vaccines are... are um, certainly under development, and, and actually some vaccines are already in clinical trials, which is great news. Nothing's really ever moved this fast, uh, and and so we may actually see a good, a couple good vaccine candidates come out the other side of clinical trials by the end of this year. It still takes a long time to do those trials because you have to see whether or not the vaccine is going to work, uh, but we may see some that they won't be distributed this year most likely, and, and but hopefully maybe early next year we'll have some that can get out to the, the ones that need it most, uh, those that are at highest risk and those that are caring mm. for them. Doctor, I mean, we obviously get pandemic-type situations once every 20 years or so. Does the next one, though, come sooner? Are we in sort of an era now where we're going to experience pandemic after pandemic? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying that with full awareness that we're nowhere near seeing an end to this particular coronavirus. Yeah, looking forward to the next pandemic. There's, there's no doubt we will continue to see pandemics. Uh, we are we are more connected uh, globally than ever before. Viruses and, and other pathogens can move around. Um, the, the world at the speed of flight, uh, we, we can um, be assured that new viruses will continue to come out of nature, as this one has, as many others have in the past. Some, are, some will be dead ends. 
uh, and and or cause limited disease like the original SARS virus, uh, and some will be global pandemics like, say, pandemic flu was and like this one is. So, Doctor, I guess the, one of the next questions is, I mean, how do you think that the states that are dealing with the surge now, is this something that they can do what perhaps New York and New Jersey and some other states did and, and kind of bend the curve to bring the term back from several months ago? Yeah, I think that uh, we can continue to um, learn and monitor what's going on with the the pandemic in, in local regions and adjust local responses. Uh, so, uh, you know, we you know after we you know did the massive shutdown and, and obviously that had a lot of detrimental effects, but it also really slowed down the virus. What did we learn from that, and how can we get closer to that slowing of the virus without maybe killing the economy? So, uh, number one, first and foremost for me is that we still have to do everything we can do to protect those that are most at risk. And and you know, at the very beginning of this, we knew um, who was going to die, and and uh, sadly they they have, and they will continue to do so until we put absolute protection around those. And that's our nursing homes, that's our elderly population with with multiple chronic conditions. Right. These are the ones who are dying. It's not the 20-somethings. Yeah. Um, so that's where we got to All right, Doctor. Thank you very much. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. David Engel-Thaler, uh, Director of Infectious Disease at TGen. you also a former state epidemiologist, ep- epidemiologist for the state of Arizona. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.